Well, good morning, and again, welcome to Fellowship Bible Church. If you're a guest with us this morning, we are studying the book of Isaiah, 66 chapters that are just, just filled with an understanding of who God is, of what God has done, His character, His eternal plans uh, for the future. But as we have seen in these opening chapters, you really can't understand the book of Isaiah until you've put it in its historical context. And uh, we've been doing that over the last uh, number of weeks as well. Isaiah lived about 700 years after uh, or before the time of Christ. It was around the 8th century B.C. In fact, in chapter 6, verse 1, uh, he gives us an identifying mark of when he began his almost 60-year prophetic ministry. And in uh, chapter 6, he says, it was in the year that the king Uzziah, he was the king of Judah, it was in the year King Uzziah died. In that year, he got his commissioning orders. God says, um, who will go for us? Wh whom shall I send? And a 25-year-old, probably around 25-year-old young man raised his hand and says, here am I, send me. And that began his prophetic ministry. But the understand it even further and to really, I think, see the historical context in a little broader way. We've got to go back another 200 years, another 200 years. You see, Israel was, um, the, the nation of Israel was this 12 tribes the, based on the 12 sons of Jacob, the 12 tribes of Israel. And they reached the, the zenith of their power, of their influence worldwide under King David and his son Solomon. But it was when Solomon died that uh, problems began. A civil war broke out. And 10 tribes, 10 northern tribes, followed a man by the name of Jeroboam. The southern two tribes of Benjamin and Judah stayed with the son of Solomon, Rehoboam. But when those 10 northern tribes split off, they walked away from Jerusalem. Because Jerusalem was the capital in Judah. And in 1 Kings chapter 12, we read these words. When all Israel saw that the king, Rehoboam, did not listen to them, the people answered the king and they said, what portion do we have here in David? We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. To your tents, O Israel. Now look after your own house, David. And so Israel departed to their tents. Now this was... This was the undoing of those northern ten tribes of Israel. Because what they're basically saying is, the covenant that God made with David, that Davidic covenant that said, I'm going to bless you, David. There will always be a little David boy on the throne. My covenant is with you in the Davidic lineage. When the ten northern tribes says, ah, forget it, we don't need you, David. That was... That was their death knell. They were nailing the final nail in their coffin when they walked away from God. And so the, the nation split, and you have the, the northern kingdom called Israel or Ephraim, and you have the southern two tribes of Benjamin and Judah, and they're called Judah. When we come to the days of Isaiah, the northern tribe was on its last leg. You see, for the 
200 years since that civil war, that, those northern, that northern tribe of Israel had 19 kings that ruled them, and not one of them followed God. They were all sinfully wicked, all 19 of them. In the southern tribe of Judah, there were also 19 kings. Only eight of them followed God. The rest were sinful and wicked. But all of the kings and all, the, all that was done in the northern tribes in those 200 years was against the Lord God, and God's patience was running out. In the 8th century B.C., in the days of Isaiah, God had raised up a powerful world empire called Assyria. If you've been with us over these weeks, we've talked about Assyria. Assyria was gobbling up nations right and left, growing from a little pocket of, of a nation to this, what was called the Neo-Babylonian era, and under Tiglath-Pileser III in 745, when he came to power, he became a juggernaut of, of military strength. In fact, Assyria was, under his leadership, Assyria was the first empire to come up with a professional army. And they moved, and um, nothing would stop them. Nothing would stop them. The nations of, of Israel and their neighbor, Syria, realized they could not stand Assyria. They could not um, overpower them individually. And so they formed an alliance. They got together and said, even though they were enemies, they formed an alliance together to fight Assyria. And to the south of them was this kingdom of Judah. And they said, join us, Judah, and the three of us can maybe thwart the power of Assyria. Well, unbeknownst to them, Ahaz, the king of Judah, whose palace was there in Jerusalem, had gone behind the scenes and formed a secret alliance with the Assyrians. With the Assyrians. Instead of trusting God, he formed this alliance with Assyria. Well, when the king Pekah of Israel and king Reason of Syria found out about that, they turned their wrath southward against Judah. It was called in 735, 732 B.C., the Syro-Ephraimite uh, Syro War. And as we saw last week in chapter 7, verse 2, it was such a powerful force coming against them that Ahaz and the hearts of his people shook as trees of the forest shake with the wind. They were in the grip of fear, and rightly so. Because as Second Chronicles 28 tells us, the Lord his God delivered him into the hand of the king of Aram, or Syria. They defeated him, that is, Ahaz of Judah. They carried away from him a great number of captives and brought them to Damascus. And he was also delivered into the hand of the king of Israel, who inflicted on him heavy casualties. For Pekah, the son of Ramaliel, slew of Judah 120,000 in one day, valiant men, because they had forsaken the Lord God of their fathers. In fact, Second Chronicles will continue and says, not only did they slay 120,000 people, they took captive another 200,000 men, women, and children. Judah was being devastated. Indeed, Ahaz and the remaining people were like trees shaking in the forest 
with a powerful wind blowing them. They were in the grip of fear. But the days of Israel and Syria were numbered. The Assyrians were coming. Isaiah takes his little son, as we saw last week, Shir Jashuv. God tells him, take your son with you and go to King Ahaz and give him this assurance. For before this boy, Shir Jashuv, will know enough to refuse evil and choose good, the land whose two kings you dread will be forsaken. There's hope, Ahaz. Trust the Lord. Do not fear. Do not worry. God is working. Before this little son of mine can know the difference between right and wrong, those two kings, Reza, Rezan of Syria, Pekah of Israel, will be gone. And indeed, within maybe a year, if, if that, after Isaiah spoke those words, Assyria, the armies of Tiglath-Pileser broke through. Rezan, the king of Syria, is dead Pekah, the king of Israel, is dead. Israel is subjugated under Assyria for the next 10 years before until 722 B.C. when the Assyrians just wipe them out and finish them. God's prophetic word through Isaiah was true. We come to chapter 8 this morning. And it's an interesting thing that God asks Isaiah to do. Uh, make a big sign, a placard, put four words on it, Meher Shalal Hashbaz. Four words that mean quick, spoil, swift, plunder, quick to the spoil, swift to the plunder, and put that billboard out for all people to see. Be, be like us driving down 81 or Highway 11, and all of a sudden, one of those big billboards are, you look, and there's Meher Shalal Hashbaz, like, what in the world is this? Except every person in Judah who saw that knew exactly what it meant. The Assyrians are quick to the plunder. They're swift to the spoil. Judgment's coming. A few months later, Isaiah and his wife have another little child, a little boy. And that little boy is born, and God tells Isaiah, now name him Meher Shalal Hashbaz. I, I don't know if that affected him the rest of his life, but that was what they named him. Quick to the spoil, speedy to the prey. Because God says, before that little boy can say, Daddy or Mommy, Israel and Syria will be gone. Now, verse 5, again, the Lord spoke to me, Isaiah said, and it says in verse 6, inasmuch as these people have rejected the gentle flowing waters of Shiloh, and these people are referring to Israel. The, the ten tribes that, that once people of God that had been part of David's dynasty and Solomon's dynasty who had rejected, who said, we want nothing to do with the Davidic lineage. To your tents, O Israel, we don't need you, David. To these people, they have rejected the gentle flowing waters of Shiloh. That's Jerusalem. That's the Davidic dynasty. That's the little 
little stream that flows through Jerusalem. They've rejected that, and they have rejoiced in reason, the son of Ramalia. They've formed an alliance with a godless king in a country of Syria. Now, therefore, verse 7, behold, the Lord is about to bring on them the strong, abundant waters of the river Euphrates. That's the Assyrians. You've rejected Shiloh. You've rejected David. Therefore, the Assyrian hordes are going to come, and they're going to be like a floodwaters. The king of Assyria in all his glory will rise up over all its channels and go over all its banks. Like a flood of waters, they're going to wipe you, Israel, away. You're going to be washed away. Judgment is coming to the nation of Syria. Judgment was coming to the nation of Israel. But Judah also to the south with King Ahaz, who did not walk and follow God. Judgment was coming there too. Verse 8, then it will sweep on into Judah. Judah's not going to escape. God's going to hold them accountable. It will overflow and pass through. It will reach even to the neck. It won't be a total drowning. They'll have to stand on their, their tippy toes, as it were, to get, get air, but it'll reach to their neck. And Assyria will spread its wings and fill the breath of your land, O Emmanuel. Now, last week in chapter 7, we were introduced to Emmanuel. Chapter 7, verse 14, there was this prophetic word from Isaiah to King Ahaz that a virgin was going to be with child, have a son, and that son's name was going to be Emmanuel, which means God is with us. It was to be a sign of hope to the house of David, uh, a, a, a reaffirmation of the covenant that God had made with David. There will always be a little David boy on the throne. I'm not going to forsake my covenant. Emmanuel, God is with us. And here again, that name Emmanuel is reiterated. The land, O Emmanuel. Judah is going to be overrun up to its neck. Judgment was coming. Verse 9 and 10, the thoughts are turned out to Assyria. He's speaking to Assyria here in 9 and 10. Be broken, O peoples, and be shattered. Give ear all remote places of the earth. That's, again, the Assyrians. Their, their armies were made up of conquered peoples from all around the nations that they had conquered. And God is saying, gird yourselves, yet be shattered. Gird yourselves, yet be shattered. Verse 10, devise a plan, it'll be thwarted. State a proposal, it will not stand. For God is with us. Now, off to your margin again, you should have the name Emmanuel, because that's what Emmanuel means. God is with us. In fact, I think it'd be better to translate in our, trans, in our, our, um, our uh, Bibles, the word Emmanuel should be there. Assyria? I'm going to judge you too. I'm going to judge Syria. I'm going to judge Israel. I'm going to judge Judah up to the neck. But Assyria, <laughs> you're just doing my bidding. I'm using you to do my judging. But one day your plans will be thwarted. One day you will not stand because of Emmanuel. If you think you can just march in here and wipe out Jerusalem, 
If you think you can end the dynasty of David, if you think I'm not with my people, think again. And so God pronounces these judgments on these nations. Which brings us back to Isaiah's first son. Mayor Shalahashbaz means quick to the spoil, swift to the plunder. But the firstborn son, Shirjashuv, means a remnant will return. If Mayor Shalahashbaz is a sign of judgment, Shirjashuv is a sign of hope. A remnant will return. And it's that believing remnant that God is not going to address through the prophet Isaiah. Look at verse 11. For thus the Lord spoke to me, Isaiah, with mighty power. Some of our translations will say, with a strong hand. Literally, it's a strong hand upon me. And he instructed me not to walk in the way of this people. You are not to say it's a conspiracy in regard to all that this people call a conspiracy. You are not to fear what they fear. Do not be in dread of it all. Verse 13, it is the Lord of hosts. It's Jehovah of armies whom you should regard as holy. And he shall be your fear. He shall be your dread. And then he will become a sanctuary. But to both the houses of Israel, a stone to strike, a rock to stumble over, and a snare and a trap for the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many will stumble over them. And then they will fall and be broken. And they will even be snared and caught. In chapter 7, Isaiah had come under the direction of God to the king Ahaz, the wicked king Ahaz, and he tried to calm him. Verse 4 of chapter 7, have no fear. Do not be faint-hearted, Ahaz. There's hope. God is with us, Emmanuel. But now God needs to come to Isaiah and encourage his heart. Isaiah needs to be encouraged. And God speaks these words of hope. Don't worry about the rumors that are flying. Don't worry about, oh, conspiracy, conspiracy. Isaiah, don't even listen to that. Don't fear what the people fear. Fear God and God only. Regard only one with fear, with dread. And it's Jehovah of the armies, the Lord of hosts. The Apostle Peter, by the way, picks up on this very verse. And in 1 Peter chapter 3, he said, Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? He's writing to the early church. They're being persecuted by the Roman Empire. They're losing their homes, some even losing their lives. It was not a good time to be a Christian. And Peter writes and he says, who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you're blessed. And then he quotes Isaiah. Do not fear their intimidation or threats. Do not be troubled, but sanctify or set apart Christ as the supreme Lord. Fear him. Set him apart. Regard him and him only as holy, as unique, as one of a kind. Fear him. See, it, it's so typical and happened was happening to Isaiah and this, this believing little remnant. Circumstances and trials and tribulations can just become overwhelming. And the more we focus on them, all of a sudden God just shrinks down. 
to just a little, little size. Pain, sorrow, hurts, old habits and past ways of, that we have been hurt, old sins that can dominate us. They could be the center point of our life. And God is telling Isaiah, so, so where am I in this process? Where is the Lord God Almighty? Who is the sovereign? Your circumstances or God? Fear me, says God. And if you do, verse 14, said he'll become a sanctuary. He'll be the place of, of rescue. He'll be the place of grace and mercy. He'll be the place of intimate fellowship, the sanctuary where God met with the people. You trust me, God says. You fear me only. And you'll find rest and peace in the sanctuary of my presence. I'll be your rock, he says. And for those who don't believe me, It'll be a rock, a stone that will strike, a rock that will stumble. It will, it will smash them, those who don't believe. God is saying, look, I'll either be a rock and a fortress for you that you can hide behind, or I'll be the rock that will pulverize you. Fear nothing but me. Trust me totally, says God. Well, it got through to Isaiah verse 16 bind up the testimony seal the law among my disciples and I will verse 17 wait for the Lord I will trust in the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob I will even look eagerly for him behold verse 18 I and the children whom the Lord has given me are for signs and wonders in Israel from the Lord of hosts the Lord of mighty armies who dwells on Mount Zion Isaiah is saying, you convinced me, oh God, didn't take much. I will trust you. I will wait for you. And, and even if I can't even see you, even if I, I can't hear you, even if it seems like you're hiding your face from me, I will wait eagerly for you because I have no place else to go. I'll trust you. I'll trust you totally, completely. And he tells that believing remnant, those disciples, those, that gathering, that small minority of believing people in that 8th century B.C. Let's trust God. Let's fear him only. Let's follow his word. Let's seal up the word, the testimony. God has spoken. It is done. Let's believe him. I will wait for the Lord, I and the children that you've given me. And then to this believing remnant, he adds this this ominous note of starting in verse 19. When they say to you, when, O believing remnant, O followers of Jehovah, the God of armies, when they say to you, consult the mediums and the spiritists who whisper and mutter. Should not a people consult their God? Should they consult the dead on behalf of the living? To the law, to the testimony. You know, follow the law, follow God. And if they do not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. 
You see, they don't have a tomorrow. And if you're not walking with God, if you're not hearing from Him, if you're not trusting Him, our tomorrows are very bleak. Verse 21, they will pass through the land hard-pressed and famished, and it will turn out that when they are hungry, they will be enraged and curse their king and their God as they face upward. And then they're going to look down to earth and behold distress and darkness and gloom of anguish, and they will be driven away into darkness. You got a choice, Isaiah says. You can look up and curse God or you can look up in faith. But if you look down at your circumstances on earth and in rage against God, there is darkness and gloom and anguish. Trust God and His Word, says Isaiah. And that's how chapter 8 ends. Focus on darkness and gloom and anguish. But verse 18 is really such a key verse. Verse 18 reminds us that Isaiah had children. And he said, I and my children are meant as signs and wonders for Israel. Three names, three signs. Mayor Shalahashbaz, judgment is coming. Shear Jashuv, but a remnant will return. There's hope. But then there's Isaiah. Remember, Isaiah means the Lord is salvation. I and my sons are signs. The Lord is salvation. And that's exactly where Isaiah now goes in chapter 9. Just look at verse 1 and 2. But, that's a great way to, you, you just talked about doom and gloom and darkness. But, there will be no more gloom for her who is in anguish. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. That's, those were tribes in the northern of Israel. But later on, he shall make it glorious. By the way, the sea, on the other side of the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, verse 2, the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. And those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. Isaiah, the Lord is salvation. And in the midst of the gloom and the darkness that is now pervasive among the people in that 8th century B.C., Isaiah is offering words of hope. On the other side of the Jordan, in Galilee of the Gentiles, Light is going to shine in darkness. There's hope. There's salvation. And next week, we'll look into chapter 9 as Isaiah unpacks that. So, so let's step back a bit. Let's just consider what Isaiah is going through, what he's facing here. His country's being torn apart by fear, sin, Despair, the Assyrian hordes are at the border. They're coming. Like a flood of waters, they're going to sweep through Judah. Sin has dominated the hearts of the highest officials of the land. King Ahaz 
is just a wicked man, as we saw last week. He even sacrifices his own children to false gods. The people of Judah, of Jerusalem, have wallowed in sin. Isaiah and his family and, and a few remaining, this remnant, these, these followers of Jehovah, they're surrounded by this fear, this darkness, this gloom, this sin. These were not pleasant times. Isaiah has got to be a troubled prophet. Twelve years before, the heavens opened and he sees God sitting on the throne, has this incredible experience as the seraphim cry out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Who will go for us? Who, who, who can I send? Here I, here I am. I'll go. And a 25-year-old young man with all the excitement of having encountered the living God and now 12 years later, and the world has gone to hell in a handbasket. It's caving in around him. And even after seeing that vision 12 years before, Isaiah needed help. <laughs> he needed encouragement. And God spoke to him. Thus says the Lord, who spoke to me, verse 14, verse 11, with a mighty power, with a powerful hand. And he instructed me not to walk in, not to cave in, not to walk in the ways of those around me. Don't give up, Isaiah. And I, and, I, and I like that word that it says mighty power, but it's the word the strong hand. Because it's as if God reached down from his throne and he grabbed Isaiah by his ears and he just turned him up by his strong hand. And he said, Isaiah, fear nothing but me, Jehovah of the armies, the Lord of hosts. The God who resides on Mount Zion, he is your dread. Sanctify him as Lord. He's in charge. Fear not, dread not, because when you trust me, I'll be your sanctuary. Hide in me. Rest in me. Find peace and intimate joy in me. Isaiah did get that message, I will wait for the Lord, even if he's hiding his face from me. I'll trust him. I'll put my trust in him. I'll eagerly look for him. In times of greatest turmoil and distress, when circumstances were overwhelming, Isaiah is an example to each of us. Trust him. But we, we've got to go deeper into this passage. We could end it there, but we'd be doing this, this passage a disservice. So we're going to have to take it just a little deeper because chapter 8 is one of the most powerful messianic chapters in the Bible. Prophecies of the Messiah. In fact, one writer said, chapter 8 is a well-mined quarry of messianic prophecies. We've already seen two references to Emmanuel, verse 8, verse 10. Harkens back again to verse 14 of chapter 7, this prophecy of the, the virgin who's going to have a child. 
this miraculous birth of, of Emmanuel, that God is with us. And so twice now in chapter 8, Emmanuel is referred to. And again in verse 14, the rock, the stone, the stone that stumbles, the rock that pulverizes in our translations, that S in stone, that R in rock should be capitalized because according to Apostle Peter, he's referring to the Lord Jesus Christ. Messianic prophecies, the stone, the rock. But there are two more references to the Messiah, to Jesus Christ in Isaiah chapter 8. It's a bit more difficult to find, though probably if we were members of the early church, good Jewish people, uh, it would have jumped out at us. But we have, to, we have to go to a good Jewish writer to remind us. It's the book of Hebrews. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. The book of Hebrews indicates that Isaiah was was like a type of Christ, a Messiah. In Hebrews chapter 2, start with verse 9. The writer says, But we see him who was made a little lower than the angels. He said, I'm speaking of Jesus. Because of the suffering of death was crowned with glory and honor so that by by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Jesus, second person of the Trinity, God Almighty, residing in the throne room of heaven, the one that Isaiah saw in Isaiah chapter 6, the Almighty, holy, holy, holy God on his throne, came to earth, was made a little lower than the angels, by God's grace, the Father's grace, so that he could taste death, he could suffer. Verse 10, for it was fitting for him, for whom, for God the Father, for whom all are all things and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. It pleased the Father to send his Son to become humanity, to suffer, to taste death. And that little phrase, that little word, the author of their salvation, you're, if you've got a King James Version, it'll say the captain, the captain of our salvation. It's a, it's a wonderful term. It, it's a term that basically means to be a trailblazer, a pioneer, one who goes before, a champion, a hero. In fact, in classical, ancient classical Greek, that word was used of, um, of like Hercules, the hero, the champion. And the writer of Hebrew takes this word, he inserts it into this verse. We have a champion. We have a hero. We have a trailblazer. He went before us. It was God who came and he wrapped himself in humanity. He suffered. He came into our world. He walked in our shoes. He suffered like we suffer. Verse 11, for both he who sanctifies or those who are, and, and those who are sanctified are from one Father, for which reason he's not ashamed to call them brethren. Jesus came to earth, and he became a man. And he was not ashamed to call us 
brothers and sisters. Our champion, our hero became one of us, our brother. And this brother of ours, this champion, said these words. Verse 12, I will proclaim your name to my brethren in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. That's from Psalm 22. And our brother and our champion, our hero, said this in verse 13. Again, I will put my trust in him. That is Isaiah 8, 17. And again, our brother and our champion said these words. Behold, I and the children whom God has given me. And that's Isaiah 8, 18. Therefore, verse 14. Since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same, so that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil. And he might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. This is the impact of God becoming a man, of being our champion, our trailblazer, our captain of our salvation, of suffering to death. For assuredly, verse 16, he doesn't give help to angels. He doesn't come and rescue and come to the aid of angels, but to the descendants of Abraham, to mankind. And therefore, verse 17, he had to be made like his brethren in all things. And he was not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation, atonement for sins of the people. Verse 18 says, For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, He's able to come to the aid. It's a word that means to hear a cry and run for help, run to help. He is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. You know what the writer of the book of Hebrews is saying? We have a champion. We have a hero who calls us brothers and sisters because he became a man. He walked with us. He understood the pain. He understood the suffering. He's been there. Isaiah is a wonderful example. He gathers the remnant together. He takes his little son, Meir Shalahashbaz, and he, he takes his other little son, Shir Jashuv, and he stands there and he says, we will trust God because there's no better place to turn. He's our sanctuary. And in all the pain and the suffering of life, and he squeezes those little hands harder, we eagerly seek him. He is our God. But that was 2,800 years ago. Wonderful example. But what Isaiah 8 is really telling us is that it's Jesus who holds our hands. It's Jesus, Emmanuel, who is saying, I've been there. I've walked there. And I will trust him. I and the children whom you have given me. The writer of Hebrews, under divine inspiration, takes us back to Isaiah 8 
and opens up the wellspring of truth. Jesus is our ultimate example. If Isaiah 8 is going to teach us anything, it's going to teach us that when our Assyrian hordes come running down our throats, you can trust him because our champion and our hero has been there. Your 10-year-old little kid, and this week at school, they teased you, they mocked you for something, and it crushed your little spirit. Jesus has been there. He, he's been there. He understands. You're a teenager, and you're going through that time of life, and it's confusing. You don't understand who listens to you or who, who you can even confide in. Friends are fickle, and your parents don't understand you. And Jesus has been there. He's walked the road. He's blazed the trail. And he's our hero. He's our Emmanuel. Are you here today? And the sorrows like sea billows roll, the sense of loneliness encroaches in. Who can I talk to? Who, who is there for me? He's been there. He's walked that road, and he understands. Are you a believer in Jesus Christ this morning? And you just feel like, I think he's, I just feel like God is playing, playing hide and seek. He's hiding his face from me. Isaiah can understand. But more than that, Jesus does. He's been there. Oh, my Father, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And he understands the pain. He understands the hurt. Take courage. Not only do we have an example in Isaiah, we've got an example in our Jesus. We have a champion, a hero, a brother, a savior, a merciful and faithful high priest who runs to our aid with his strong hand. And this morning, he just wants to gently lift your head up like he did Isaiah. And he says, trust me. Regard me as holy. I'm your champion. I'm your hero. I'm Emmanuel, God with us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the richness of your word, the compassion of your heart, the example of our Savior. Father, no one should leave here today not thinking huh, that you are not ever present, holding our hands, lifting up our heads, and working mightily in our behalf as our champion, as our hero, as a merciful and faithful high priest, our Emmanuel. 
May we embrace you more, walk more humbly before you. And when the Assyrian hordes start pressing in, may we fear you and you only. In Christ's name, amen.